You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. This is in uh, the time of the corona outbreak, and so I'm calling these my bunker recordings. So uh, bear with the uh, the slightly different uh, aesthetic, audio aesthetic of what you're listening to. Um, just kind of uh, consider this part of a historical document of what we've all been living through here. Um, as we record, this is March 25th, and so um, who knows what will have happened by the time this show actually drops, but I think I've got one that is timely for us here today. Uh, joining me for the show, once again, is uh, the great Josh Wise. Josh, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing good. You're uh, you're bunkered up in a church. Is this? Uh... Yeah, we've got the doors boarded up. We. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it's literally true that on Sunday, so we have a second church that meets in our church. Okay. Um, and so I live in a rectory connected to a church. Um, but we have a, a an African Anglican church that meets in our church, and they continued to meet after the bishop said, "Hey, no more, no more meeting." So I had like Facebook messaged uh, the priest and said, "Do you want me to zip tie the doors closed?" Um, <laughs> and he was like, "This early in the morning, I'm not sure if that's a joke or real." And I was like, "No, I'm I'm like being honest. They're they're like resisting the state and the bishop. Like it's it might be time to just gently tell them." Please don't come inside to have your worship services. Uh, but fortunately, he was able to get hold of them and let them know. But there was at least discussion of zip tying the do- the church doors closed. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, not that I think it would have worked. I actually don't think there are handles on the insides of the doors. And zip tying the outside doesn't really work. Uh, <laughs> um but yeah, yeah, bunkered up in uh in a house with uh with a housemate and a recovering surgery patient. So it's, uh, but we have some room to spread out. Uh, and I'm a bit of a, a prepper anyway, not like a hardcore prepper, but like, uh, have two weeks of canned goods and, and water already. Yeah. Uh, so, um, this, this is sort of my time to shine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Your whole life has been des- uh, aimed at this moment sort of, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you, so, if you don't remember, Josh was on the show oh several months ago talking about mm-hmm. apocalypse in in, right, in, yeah. <laughs> uh, in pop culture narratives, and we've been trying to um, get together to do something again, and I think we're going to kind of revisit that topic a little bit, but um, sure. probably um, emphasize. Now, I personally, I have very kind of un. I'm I'm very untrained theologically um, to my own okay. kind of embarrassment, and so um, I I probably have kind of contradictory ideas about things, right? And, mm. and, and because I haven't like fully uh, investigated them and I don't have the vocabulary to kind of explore things. And so I'm very excited actually to pick Josh's theological brain about apocalyptic topics. Okay. So I think okay. that's kind of where we're going to go. I have no idea I'm going to title this, uh, what I'm going to title this episode, <laughs> but that's apocalypse kind of... Apocalypse <laughs> part two. I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, what does God think of apocalypse, right? And so, yeah. Right. This is, yeah. Um, apocalypse, the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so um, I, I just kind of wanted to begin by um, 
letting you sort of uh, talk a little bit about why you you came up with this idea. I know some of your research is uh, is based on this and some of the things that you publish and, and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, but I, I want to kind of give you a chance to kind of open things up. Uh, and just sort of talk about apocalypse as a as yeah. an idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, we have to. <laughs> all the everyone who's a biblical scholar is sitting there going, like, is he going to say the thing that we need to say? Uh, so, uh, so this is sort of a preface that um, there are there are sort of three things I guess that we talk about when we talk about apocalypse. Uh, there is the genre of literature that exists in the ancient world, which is called apocalyptic. Um, and that is, uh, that is things like first Enoch. That's the second half of the book of Daniel. It's, uh, the book of revelation, uh, things like that. You have this, what sometimes is called, uh, in, in the gospel of Mark, I think it's Mark 13, the little apocalypse where Jesus says, you know, the skies will be open. The son of man will appear all of that stuff. Um, there's a whole debate about where that genre comes from as does it come out of prophecy is it sort of its own development that that sort of because you have sort of in the background of all of that this idea from the eighth century prophets BC the day of Yahweh mm. right so the day of Yahweh and originally this is an idea of uh, the day of victory in battle for Yahweh right so Yahweh the the God of the God of North of Israel and one of the gods of Judah sort of maybe the patron God of Judah because his temple was there mm. um, uh, that that the day of Yahweh was the day of victory. And then in the 8th century, you get the shift where the day of Yahweh becomes a day of judgment. Uh, the day of Yahweh is actually the day of victory for Yahweh over people's sin. Mm. Right. So um, you've been crushing the poor. Not you personally, Danny, but you've been crushing the poor. <laughs> I used to be a um, landlord, so that's probably true. Yeah. I actually had, I'm like embarrassed to admit I used to be a landlord, but, um, but yeah. <laughs> We could trade most embarrassing job stories one day. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, you've been crushing the poor. You've been crushing foreigners, you know, stuff that's totally not relevant anymore. Um, but uh, so the day of Yahweh becomes the day in which Yahweh is vindicated, uh, not the people, because Yahweh loves righteousness. Right. So that sort of goes through a transformation. It, it goes into the sixth century BC, uh, or late seventh century. And it becomes the, again, another day of judgment, but eventually once you get out of the Babylonian exile, it becomes the day of vindication. Again, it's once again, the day of vindication, the day when the Jewish nation will be vindicated by Yahweh. And, um, you know, uh, the son of man will appear in the sky. The dead will be raised. The enemies of God will be destroyed by a fire. Um, and, uh, so this, this talking about that vindication day is what apocalyptic sort of is. And so we see that apocalyptic in Jewish literature, um, and we see it in Christian literature and Christian literature is really taking, especially first Enoch and the second half of the book of Daniel and saying, how do we reconstruct this now that Jesus has been raised from the dead? What does this picture look like? Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty well on record of saying, like, I think books like uh, Second Thessalonians and Revelation didn't do much to the picture. They just sort of said, oh, we're just going to stick Jesus in the role of the son of man. And then he punishes all of his enemies uh, and they're punished forever in a, in a fire that can't go out um, or can't be put out, uh, essentially. Um, then you have things like Matthew 25, which restructures the judgment 
of the apocalypse where it's no longer about who's your friend and your enemy. It's about who was kind to the weak. Mm. Um, and so that judgment changes. And you get Paul saying weird things like uh, that fire that's coming at the end that's actually going to save people. Uh, and so Paul like radically changes the picture. Um, uh, and so uh, that you, you have this literature around that. So it's got visions, it's got animals, it's got, you know, like a person taken up into because the, the term apocalypse obviously means to reveal. It's a thing that's revealed, right? There's the genre, right, that we talked about. There's the um, there's the sort of events that it talks about, right? The end of the world, the, the changing of everything, the revealing of, of all new things. Um, you know, the very, very famous line from uh, uh, the book of Revelation, behold, I make all things new, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of apocalypse in a, in a nutshell. Behold, look, all things now are new, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then finally, what you get is the secularization of this idea, uh, which becomes the idea of when all the things end. Right. And so in a Christian context and in an ancient Jewish context, and I would say in contemporarily in a conservative or orthodox Jewish context, there is post apocalypse. But that post apocalypse is a new heavens and a new earth, a new cosmos of righteousness. Mm. Um Post-apocalypse in the secular context largely means, uh, you know, uh, everything's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so what brought me sort of into engaging with all this stuff uh, was this idea. Well, first, I mean, to some degree, I was always interested in, but to another degree, at some point during my PhD, um, one of my professors said, "You should probably start figuring out what you want to write your dissertation about." And he just said this to a whole our whole class and said, like. Think about writing your papers as if they were chapters of your dissertation. Yeah, good uh, advice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, that was Professor Michael Root, who's done a bunch of stuff in eschatology. He's a Catholic theologian, and that was an eschatology class. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to write my paper on George MacDonald, his universalism and hell. And uh, my dissertation ended up being on universalism and hell, with the last two chapters focusing on George MacDonald. So it turns out I followed that <laughs> yeah. to the T. And, um, and it got me very, very interested in this whole thing. My undergrad degrees in Bible. So I've always been a, a sort of systematic theologian who's been really interested in, yeah, but what, what does the Bible actually say? And not in a, uh, sort of contemporary, uh, evangelical or Protestant, uh, what does the Bible actually say? Meaning I just go to it and read it, but what do biblical scholars say that the Bible says? Yeah. Um, What's the original cultural context, Second Temple Judaism, how was the Bible constructed, all that stuff. So I'm a real firm subscriber to like Mark Smith's theory that most of the Bible was written after the Babylonian exile. Okay. Um, and none of that to me challenges the divinity of Jesus. Like right. that's in, in fact, uh, in fact, as I understand it, it all actually really supports it. Um, so, so this, a lot of this has come out of uh, looking at sort of the 20th century r realization um, around the idea that Jesus was a preacher of apocalyptic ideas. Mm -hmm. He is an eschatological preacher. Um, and that the sort of understanding of if you're going to understand Jesus, you should understand eschatology and apocalyptic thought. Yeah. Um, and so it sort of grew from there and it grew from challenges, challenges that people made uh, to uh, things like the historical Jesus and things like that. 
where um, if somebody challenges what I believe, I'm very interested in going just reading all the literature and going, well, am I wrong? Uh, and uh, sort of my experience with this has been far more the more I learn about Second Temple Judaism and their eschatological expectations, the more I'm convinced Jesus rose from the dead. Like, it's a really weird connection. Yeah. Um, but it's been a very interesting uh, interplay between these two ideas. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a great background for this because it, it sets up, I think, uh, one of the tensions that you see in kind of apocalyptic narratives. Um, and so one is... So you have this kind of more kind of biblical studies um, background that takes in the context, right? Right. Um, and then you have this kind of more fundamentalist, um, like low church slash evangelical background right. that I came out of um, that has adopted this kind of view of end times, right? Um, right. That is right. basically a 19th century construct. Um, and uh, And they have kind of retrofitted their reading of the Bible to fit this kind of um, eschatological worldview, right? Um, and the Left Behind series is probably the apotheosis right. of this, right? And so, um, and if you ever um, are, have time to kill on Twitter, um, like there's a really couple of really great accounts um, that kind of uh, highlight the independent fundamental Baptist uh, denomination, the King James only people. And, okay. uh, and one is called IFB Preacher Clips and the other one is called North Worst Seminary. And um, and they, they basically just show clips of these people uh, of their sermons, right? And mm. without comment <laughs> and, and, mm -hmm. and, and it becomes um, funny. But you see a lot of the kind of I think that there's a, a bit of a, a poisonous um, theology that comes out of this fundamentalist reading of, of things like apocalypse. Right. And you see it in these very cruel clips on those two mm -hmm. Twitter accounts. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess this is kind of what um, I'm struggling with personally, because there is a way to see apocalypse um, rightly or wrongly as retribution, right? This is mm -hmm. God's mm -hmm. punishment on the world. Right. right. Um, and, um, Part of me, I have to say, is uh, as someone who's interested in like justice, you know, mm -hmm. I feel like there's something attractive about that. Like, um, like sure. listening to Woody Guthrie songs, right? There, there's a, there's that kind of like, um, uh, theology behind those things. Like God is going to come and punish the oppressors, right? Um, for, for, right. for what they've mm -hmm. done. Um, but then another part of me finds it really hard to believe this, <laughs> Finds, mm -hmm. finds mm -hmm. that. And so this is the struggle that I'm personally having. Right. And so right. like I'm at once attracted to the idea, but also repelled by it in some ways. And you mentioned George MacDonald. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I, I know that you want to talk more about him um, along the way, but that, that's kind of the tension that I'm sort of interested in um, exploring mm -hmm. with you. And I guess I'm just asking you to help me figure out what, what I actually believe here. Um, and, sure. And, and Navigate that age old question of the love and justice of God. Yeah, yes, sure. Exactly. Yeah, we'll do that. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to contextualize this a little bit uh, as far as the uh, the evangelical end times thing. On one level, you're absolutely right. This is sort of a 19th century reading of it. But another thing that you find is when you read Antichrist texts throughout the history of the church, what you end up finding is that from about the second, uh, late second, early third century onward, the narrative that evangelicals have about the Antichrist is already in place almost point for point. Okay. Like this, like, there's a very clear, like, he's going to come out of potentially Rome. He's, um, you know, he's going to reign for seven years. There's going to be all this stuff. The thing that obviously uh, that we get in the last two centuries, 
especially out of the, and very specifically out of the Plymouth Brethren, is the idea of the rapture mm. that sucks everybody out of the world before the Antichrist happens, right? So in the Middle Ages, you have all this fear around the Antichrist, and you get like um, you get play cycles with the Antichrist. You get all this stuff where people are terrified of the Antichrist, and people are identifying the Antichrist with. There's uh, there's actually a paper to be written, um, and maybe I'll do it, or maybe somebody who's listening to this will get to it before me. There's a paper to be written about the Antichrist's mother because she's she is in the Middle Ages juxtaposed to Mary mm. in all of these ways. So where Mary is a Jewish virgin, uh, the Antichrist's mother is a Jewish whore. Mm. Um, and it's like it's, it's all this stuff. But if you look at like second and third century Antichrist uh, work, there really is this narrative of the, we're in the end times. The Antichrist is nigh. And here's what it's going to look like. And it's shockingly similar to what we have now. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's one way in which you're hundred percent right. A lot of this stuff is like a, an evangelical interpretation, but they also pulled this directly from the patristic period and carry, which carried through sort of the medieval and the, um, the, the reformation period. Would they have like been talking more about Rome itself? I mean, because Rome was still an empire at that point. I mean, um, is that, Mm -hmm. is that part of the difference? So that's part of the difference. Uh, you'll also get, I mean, you get the whole idea that the sea is the politics. Mm -hmm. You get this idea, like you get these things. Um, and I'm trying to remember the exact text. There is a, there is a text, uh, uh, on the antichrist from a monk. Uh, I want to say his name is Adzo in like the ninth or 10th century that becomes sort of the definitive medieval text on the antichrist. And again, it's so similar to what we have now. Hmm. Uh, and because so much of it really is this, um, these themes of interpretation that just get passed down. So yeah, they, they, well, and certainly you look at something like, uh, the book of revelation and the idea that Nero is coming back and this theme of Nero redivivus, the idea that Nero didn't actually die when Nero died. He just went off to the East and hid, and he's going to come back and persecute the Christians. Mm. This is an idea in the first century. Uh, and then you get the church fathers talking about this idea of, the Antichrist or the false prophet being somehow like Nero. Um, so all that stuff is sort of just woven in and has continued on through. And then what we're seeing in, in sort of the evangelical uh, movement, especially after the Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren's uh, you know, invention of the rapture, is the new version of all of that. Mm. Um, but there is a sort of shocking continuity yeah. across Christian history for that. Oh, that's fascinating. That's news to me. And so I, I really am uh, grateful for that. That's very, that's very interesting. And I guess another difference is um, modern evangelicals who believe this way don't engage with any of that kind of right. scholarship. It's, it's just sort of right. this narrative framework that they, they, they read the Bible through. Right. You know? And so, um, yeah, they kind of decontextually read the Bible yeah. um, based Oh, strictly on this kind of presupposition about things like the rapture and that kind of thing. Well, what's, what's interesting, right, is that you have this thing where what you're seeing is the older, what we would call sort of pre-evangelical, pre-fundamentalist um, holiness movements, biblicist uh, movements in America uh, were much better well-read mm-hmm. theologically. And they passed this stuff down and just became part of the interpretive tradition without people going back and reading like Tertullian and, you know, people like that who have these very strong pictures of wrath at the end. Um, and so to kind of get to your, your question here about like, 
uh, George McDonald. Yeah. Uh, what, what I think is really interesting is that you have these, um, you have sort of on one side uh, of the picture, the question of justice framed in the context of wrath. Uh, and I think what you end up seeing, what you get in things like Second Thessalonians, Revelation, um, is the wrath of God comes at the end of the world in response to Christian persecution. So when you look at the book of Revelation and you look at Second Thessalonians, which are your two really big books on, God's just not just going to like destroy his enemies, going to destroy him with fire and it's going to be terrible and they'll be burned forever uh, from age to age. Um which is a more destructive view than even the Jewish idea beforehand. The mm -hmm. Jewish idea beforehand was you have a fire uh, in a valley, God will destroy his enemies. And then the rabbis debate about, well, how long is that fire going to burn? Is it a year and a day? Is it, you know, is it immediate? Are they destroyed right away? Because the concept is it's not a fire that goes on forever. It's a fire that no one can put out but God. So there's no hope for the people inside of it. They just get destroyed. Mm -hmm. Um the rest of the New Testament, though, seems pretty ambivalent on what the end, final fate of everything is. Uh, in Johannine literature, you get some universalism. You get some really firm universalism in the book of Romans, uh, where Paul's like, yeah, uh, in the end, all the Gentiles will be saved and all the Jews will be saved. Well, there's no one left. That's it. Like, <laughs> those are the two groups. Those are the two um, types of people in this world. Right. right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, um you know, there's not some third group who's like, well, I'm neither, uh, you know, that Paul's like, but those guys are screwed. So, um, you know, and you can see a development of Paul's thought from the crucify the Lord of glory early on in Paul's career, all the way to what will happen to Israel. Well, they'll all be saved. Um, and that that development goes from wrath to mercy. Mm. Um because I, and I think what's happening is you have a person who's spending 12 years of his life meditating on the resurrected Christ. And he's he just keeps butting up against these questions and asking God, what what are you going to do about this? Mm -hmm. And the ultimate solution for him is mercy. Um, so Paul is sort of in the mercy camp eventually. But you get like Second Thessalonians Revelation, which are in the wrath camp, and they are very deeply rooted in, we've seen the persecutions. These are later texts, right? So they've seen Nero's persecution. They've seen uh, the persecution of Christians for 60 years, let's say, off and on. And people like Tertullian, the uh, second century church father-ish figure, um, pick that up and you get him writing things like uh, the spectacles on the spectacles where he's talking about like comedians and wrestlers and actors and all these things. And he has this really shocking chapter at the end of that work where he says like, Oh, do you want to know what the real spectacles are going to be when all of you are burning in fire and we're in heaven watching you. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be the greatest spectacle ever. You're going to like, you're just going to be tumbling about in the fire and we're just going to be laughing and laughing. And like Tertullian shows his whole hand that, when that picture of heaven and hell are given the divine wrath, the divine judgment, it's vindic like it's vindictive. Yeah. Yes. And it has nothing to do with Jesus. Yes. Like <laughs> there is literally nothing Jesus says that even comes close to that. Yes. 
Um, and this is this is I guess that's really illustrative of of my complaint about this mindset. It's like there's almost like this kind of gleeful anticipation of yep. other people suffering, right? Yeah. Um, and, and and I think that that is profoundly unchristian, right? And and yeah. I, and I suppose that. Um, um, this is all somehow tied up with even, I mean, controversial ideas about um, uh, substitutionary atonement, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and I know that uh, like McDonald like turns away from that a bit, right? Oh, um, deeply, 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 more than yes, a bit. Okay, yes. and, and yeah, so deeply. yeah, and so I mean, th- these this idea of like how we perceive the end playing out is right. deeply connected to um, root beliefs about Christianity, yes. right? And, and so uh, why don't you talk a little bit about McDonald there? Yeah, so uh, if, you, if, if you talk about McDonald, you have to talk about Calvinism because he comes out of Calvinism and he's strongly in response to who I would, I, I would say, and maybe this is controversial, maybe it's not, the greatest Calvinist English-speaking preacher of all time, Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. And MacDonald sets himself firmly against Edwards. He doesn't bring up Edwards a lot, but his hatred of Edwards' theology is really clear. Okay. So MacDonald, a Scottish uh, author, poet, uh, children's author, preacher. Yeah, um, I've read like little werewolf stories by him. Like, uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, okay, go ahead. He, um, so he grows up in Federalist Calvinism in Scotland. Uh, to the point where, like, he wants to play the fiddle and his mother or grandmother throws his fiddle in the fire because it's, like, it's the devil's instrument, mm. blah, blah, blah. MacDonald rejects all of this as a young man and goes almost the other way. And I would argue that what Calvin, that what, what uh, Calvin, uh, what, what MacDonald does is he becomes um, a four-point Calvinist. Uh, he goes from being a five-point Calvinist to a four-point Calvinist. And his five, his four point Calvinism, uh, just drops limited atonement. Okay. Um, so if you have irresistible grace, the preservation of the saints, um, uh, unconditional election and total depravity and unlimited atonement, you have universalism, Mm. uh, and McDonald's, you can sort of interpret McDonald's, uh, theology as, um, Taking Jonathan Edwards' theology and flipping that one switch, and tulip to uh, tulip, right? Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, you have to have to rearrange letters to spell some new thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yes, um, so this idea, I mean, for Edwards, and this is especially evident in his work, um, "Wicked Men Useful in Their Destruction Only." Uh, one of Jonathan Edwards' l- l- like lesser-known sermons, mm. uh, but he makes it. Edwards makes it very clear: human beings are instrumental to God. Their job is to give God glory. You either give God glory uh, voluntarily, or God tortures you, and that's how you give God glory. Mm. And so it's very, very instrumental. And he makes it very clear throughout his sermon that it is instrumental. You're like a house that's not serving its purpose. Uh, whereas McDonald focuses relentlessly on the idea that we are the siblings of Christ. We are made in the image of God. We are the living thoughts of God. We are like McDonald is constantly talking about personhood and Edwards is constantly talking about um, instrumentality, objectification. Uh, And if you want to sort of bring this into a 20th century ethical context, 
McDonald is Uber's I thou and Edwards is an eternal I it. Mm. Um, and so McDonald really thinks that the, the divine principle is an I speaking to vows and Edwards is it's an I speaking to things. Mm. It's. Um, and so Boober's a really good lens for sort of understanding McDonald and Edwards in juxtaposition because McDonald insists because of who God is, the justice of God will always rage against sin, but never against people, except insofar as they identify with their sin. And so the wrath of God comes to free us from sin. Uh, and so punishment for McDonald, punishment is always uh, uh, a healing punishment, or it's always intended to be a healing punishment. So even hell is meant to save. Um, so for McDonald, all things, like St. Paul says, all things work together for the good. And so this idea that, um, and it's very much, I mean, McDonald was heavily influenced by Greek fathers. He was influenced by origin. Um, he was, you know, he went to, uh, Aberdeen college and learned ancient Greek and studied it and, and was quite good with his languages. So he was able to read a lot of the ancient Greek church fathers who were you know, had a real universalist bent to many of them. Mm -hmm. And what we see in MacDonald is uh, sort of a, um, a pseudo Dionysian idea that goodness is self-diffusive. Goodness always spends itself to put itself further and further out to the lowest and draw the lowest in. Uh, whereas Edwards sees goodness as power. Ultimately, it, power is at the top of, of the hierarchy of divinity. And so power sort of does whatever it wants. And that's what goodness is, is, is power. So for McDonald, judgment's not a thing to be feared. Judgment's a thing to be desired. We long for judgment because in, in judgment, we're purified. In judgment, the thing that is bad that's in us will be pulled out of us or the whole will be filled in. Um, and so if hell is necessary then hell will be used to save us. Mm. Um, and so in McDonald's viewpoint, we can not only long for judgment for ourselves, but long for judgment for others. Uh, not because we want wrath on them, but because we want their sin to be destroyed and we want them to be made whole. Um, and sort of the way you can tell which one you are is uh, whether or not your initial reaction to somebody doing something bad is to want them to suffer or to want them to be made well. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, uh, is really the distinction between, I'd say, Edwards and McDonald and their understanding of divine wrath. McDonald believes in divine wrath. Uh, I believe in divine wrath, but I'm on McDonald's side. I believe that in the end, all the wrath will end. Um, or another way of putting it is the wrath will be everlasting against evil and evil will be finally expelled. Yeah. Uh, and put out forever and all that's good everything that god has made will be made whole yeah uh, and then judgment will have fallen yeah so can i try out um my new 
tools here um, as a, to interpret the coronavirus. Uh, two, two, sure. two possible responses to corona. Um, one is that, so from the Edwards point of view, um, there's a generational sin and the older generation is going to be wiped out um, because of God's <laughs> wrath, right? Uh-huh. And, and the other one, uh, more, more of a McDonald one, is that this virus is exposing injustices in our, in our society um, and through this, we can fix those problems. Um, we, we can try to uh, um, solve some of the, the systematic problems about um, how we staff hospitals or, you know, however you want to look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's sort of two different approaches to interpreting um, a seemingly apocalyptic event, which it's not. I know I'm overreading right, right, this right. Pr- particular moment, but, um, but a lot, and that's one of the reasons this seems timely is because of what's going on right now. Right, so, right. So um, am I kind of uh, misapplying those a little bit? I don't. I, I don't. I don't think you're misapplying them. I would say uh, the sort of historian in me would say, um, well, larger societal issues were not often either of these men's concerns, as far as I can tell. Okay. Uh, maybe Edwards a little bit more. Uh, I'm not as familiar with Edwards, except in his eschatology and his his general theology. So, uh, so he more- might have preached on larger societal issues. Yeah, they this were is- very concerned about the individual's morality. Okay. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think both of them would say something along the lines of uh, the coronavirus doesn't introduce really anything new to your world. It may change your situation for a little while. It may um, it may blow away some of the smoke that you've uh, created around yourself and thinking that your world is nice and safe and secure and all of these things. And insofar as it does that, it's good. And they both would probably say that, that insofar as this whole process says to you, hey, by the way, remember, you're just a mortal and your world is a very fragile thing and it will also end. Mm. Uh, and that's guaranteed. There's no getting out of that. You're going to die. Um, so insofar as it puts you back into a position where ultimate questions are of a primary concern, I think they both would say that's a good mm-hmm. Um but very much the same way that someone like C.S. Lewis would say war can be good because it it puts us in the moral crisis. It, it makes it obvious that we're in the moral crisis at all times. And it draws out of us charity and all of these things that, you know, people who haven't been involved in it don't really realize. Um, I think that they would both also say, now is the time to respond. Mm-hmm. Now is the time to say, how can I love my neighbor? How can I do this thing? Now, Edwards would be much more concerned, I think, about... Um, you giving glory to God and saying, you know, doing all the right things as far as that goes. For McDonald, he would, I, I think McDonald would say, what does the Lord Jesus Christ call us to do in the midst of trouble? Well, it's the th- same thing he calls us to do all the time. It's the same thing that he does for his father in the Trinity. It's the same thing he did when he was here with us in the body, which is to love one another, to care for each other, to treat each other like brethren and sisters and um, and and to give ourselves up for each other. Mm. And so I think for both of them, they would say nothing fundamentally has changed here. But if what it allows us to do is to see more clearly, then great. Um, now, I think McDonald would say, and perhaps Edwards would too, although if you didn't do what, what I'm about to describe, they would respond differently. But I think they would both say, if you or somebody you know gets the coronavirus, uh, the thing to do at that moment is to drop the pointless things and turn yourself to God Mm. and say, 
oh, I've been foolish. However this turns out, um, I've really let myself get distracted by pointless things. Um, and for McDonald, if you fail to do that, well, there will be endless chances to do it because God will never give up on you. I see. Uh, right. For Edwards, if you don't do it and you die, oh, well, you'll burn forever in hell. Yes. Uh, we'll laugh to the at delight you. of the people in heaven. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> um, uh, if you haven't read Jonathan Edwards, Heaven, A World of Love, it's a fantastic essay because part of heaven being a world of love is them looking down on the damned in hell and laughing at them. Oh, my. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, um, but it really is this. So I don't know if these large, sort of, but if you were to take the principle, yeah, yeah, right, and then apply it to larger social issues, then yeah, I think what you're saying is right. That I don't know if Edwards would say that the older generation is the responsible ones and therefore they have a judgment coming on them. Um, but I think he would say all generations are deeply evil. Uh, and here, this happens to be the one that's affecting these people. But don't think for a minute that you're not just as bad yeah. as the boomers. Hey, Zoomers, yeah. don't like <laughs> um, uh, just because this one isn't aimed at you. It doesn't mean. Uh, yeah. And, and I think McDonald would say, no, that's ridiculous. The Lord said when this man was born blind, neither he sinned nor his parents sinned. Yeah. So that's not how that works. Yeah. Um, but I think he would say if. If you're a doctor or a nurse or if you run a hospital or if you're in like your greed that not doctors and nurses so much but like uh if you're involved in the organization of our healthcare system blah 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 if your greed has caused other people's suffering you're already in hell yeah you already exist in hell and uh the time to turn back is now because if you don't the other hell will blaze to, re to reclaim you and you don't want that that's a terror um and so yeah i, I think i think the general application yeah. is is generally right uh but there i make a couple tweaks no no that's great and this is just a taste of uh of uh, joshua wise's uh of smartness i want to um, um move a little bit to some popular culture sure applications of this idea but before that i mean i want to give you if you're um impressed as i am by josh's ideas you do podcasting a lot uh, do you want to pitch some of your stuff right now oh sure yeah um i hate pitching my own stuff but sure i'll do it <laughs> um, <laughs> uh so i don't have a strict theology podcast at the moment uh the the one podcast where i talk uh the most about theology although we end up talking about sex a lot uh <laughs> is our video game podcast <laughs> no okay. avatars allowed um <laughs> which is also a book that came out from church publishing last year very little sex in that book <laughs> um but uh we um no avatars allowed is a podcast where me uh an episcopal priest friend of mine ben wallace who also does the priest pulse podcast and uh, uh a woman named rachel dalton we all get together to talk about video games every week, and we really try to talk about where they intersect with bigger issues, so philosophy, theology, cultural realities. Um, theology comes up there sometimes. I run a whole network of podcasts, though, the All Ports Open Network, allportsopen.com. Uh, we have uh, a lot of different kinds of podcasts there. I would love to get another theology podcast going, but we're actually just about to uh, launch another just pop culture podcast where we just sort of sit and talk for an hour about something. Uh, so we do our first episode is going to be a two hour discussion of the dark tower series. Oh, nice. Um, so, uh, and then I write a horror, uh, audio drama called weeping cedars, which came out last year. Second season's coming out later this year. Um, 
uh, I have a book coming out from Matthew Brakes uh, uh, series that will be probably, I don't know, later this year, early next year about eschatology and pop culture. Uh. Um, so, yeah, there, there's sort of a lot of stuff around. Uh, but right now, so I was I was a adjunct professor for a few years. I stopped doing that in December. I've sort of become an independent scholar uh, going back to computer programming uh, for my day job, although that the coronavirus has stopped that process uh, yeah. cold. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's been sort of an adjustment trying to figure out what do I do with theology now that I'm not in a classroom teaching the same classes over and over and over again, uh, which is sort of an adjunct lot sometimes of just doing that repeatedly. Uh, but yeah, it would be nice to kind of get a new podcast together to just talk theology. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll tap you for for some of those. Okay, hey, anytime. Um, I don't know if I can contribute anything worthwhile with that, but I, I'd be happy to help out in any way I can. Well, that's the thing yeah. about theology is everybody's ultimately a theologian. It's, well, uh, they might yes. not be an academic theologian, but uh, <laughs> they are a theologian. They all have something to say about God. So, well, um, in, in yeah. my own, if I could, I, I try not to talk. I say this, but then I think everyone's think knows that this isn't true. I try not to talk too much about myself on the show, and I'm sure everybody's thinking, "Yes, he does all the time." But I, I literally <laughs> try not to. Um, but um, I, one of my own kind of problems is a, a lack of kind of systematic theological training. Mm-hmm. I think leads to a lot of like contradictory beliefs in my in my own um, my own self, right? And, and so because um, I haven't. I haven't done the reading, I think. And so I, people like you help me, uh, help me focus on the reading. So I appreciate that. Um, and so the, uh, I guess what I want to do is move to like, of in incidents, incident, excuse me, incidents of pop culture uh-huh. that, um, that kind of allow us to kind of tease out this theological framework that you just walked us through one that comes to my mind um, initially. And I don't know if, if you have anything to say about these, but the kind of classic Romero zombie um, film, uh, uh-huh. those clearly have some sort of um, retributive um, uh, under base, right? The, in Dawn mm-hmm. of the dead, the, the line when hell is full, the, right. the dead will walk the earth. Right. And so right. Yeah. Like, the, 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 the plague of the walking dead is explicitly tied to the sin of previous uh, generations. Right. And, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and, um, and all of his films um, that he directed have this very clear political agenda. I mean, um, right, right. And, and they're all about sin being punished. Right. To the point mm-hmm. where land of the dead, which I love, this movie um i teach it in my horror film class and um and in my pittsburgh lit class that i teach um but i i, I love this movie I mean, the zombies are actually not the bad guys in that you actually right, right yeah root for the zombies they're actually <laughs> uh-huh. you're actually on the side of death in that movie right and i think that's a fascinating against capital basically i mean that's kind right. of what uh-huh. that movie's about and so um for me like the romero zombie is a very anti-mcdonald view um of apocalyptic narrative right and so mm-hmm. um that's one contribution I can make. You can um, add on to that or, or um, add other uh, examples of your own there. Yeah, well, I think the the sort of apocalyptic image in culture, because it became so secularized through – my argument is that it becomes secularized essentially through H.G. Wells and World War One. Mm. that what we have is this um, Enlightenment-era – rationalism era optimism right we're going to fix everything uh everything's going to be okay 
we've got technology now. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna subdue nature, and we're gonna win. Uh, and if anybody uh, is interested in a really good response to that, I think C.S. Lewis's *The Abolition of Man* is a really fantastic response to that impulse of we're going to win over nature. Um, and it's, it's sort of a masterwork of logic, uh, that book. Uh, and that all falls apart. And this is a well-known sort of arc of, you know, Western society that the, the, the blue eye, blue skied optimism of, uh, of rationalism and empiricism falls to pieces in world war one, where we just go, wait, what happened? We just murdered millions of people for what and we used our technology to do it what on earth are we doing um and then world war ii happens and we see the atomic bomb and we all of a sudden enter into this period where we, we i don't think we've ever come out of it uh where we realize um all this could end in a moment and uh but how likely is it that it would really all end mm. like that we could really wipe ourselves out yeah. entirely. Yeah. Um, there's always the sense because coupled with this, right? Because if humans are smart enough to wipe themselves out, they're also smart enough to survive a little bit Yeah. in it. So you get this narrative then that uh, we're going to uh, re- sort of push the reset button. And, you know, you end up of course with uh the postman and water world, uh, the great Kevin Costner contributions yeah. to the post-apocalyptic <laughs> narrative. <laughs> yeah. um, but Mad Max, right? Um, the, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You get Mad Max, you get a boy and his dog, which is uh, maybe one of the most influential post-apocalyptic stories of, of all time. Have, have you ever read a boy and his dog or seen the movie? I've seen the movie years and years ago, okay. um, but yeah. Um, and that movie is like highly influential on things like Fallout, yeah. uh, the video game series. Uh, so this idea that we can we can wipe ourselves out for the most part, and then we've got to kind of struggle and and rebuild or just endure uh, is there. That be, because that has something in common with the Christian narrative. That I actually kind of think these two things grow up. Uh, let's grow up independently from each other, but they're independent phenomena that deeply influence each other. Mm. So that the Romero picture of the apocalypse, um, or even just, you know, like Romero's isn't apocalyptic in, in the way we think about it. It's the original film is just the night of the living dead. It's True. one night, you know, like it's, <laughs> it happens and then it's over and then people have to kind of deal with it. So in some ways it's, it's more like what we expect the coronavirus to be. It's a thing where everybody goes like, oh, I have to hold up in this house. Yeah. And then at the end, it's over and we've, oh, we've, we've done it. We've gotten through it. And except for racism. Yeah. Um, you know, so, racism endures, right? right Which exactly. and then when you fast forward to Land of the Dead, Big Daddy, the lead zombie is a black man, right? And I think that this is, mm-hmm. um, I think there's a nice bookend to those. Um, but go ahead. I, yeah. So I admit I haven't seen Land of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but, uh, and I will say that, uh, the remake of Dawn of the Dead is a movie I begrudgingly love due to who directed it. Um, <laughs> Jack Snyder, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> I begrudgingly tip my hat to that man because that's a great <laughs> horror film. Um, uh, but 
Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's just such a, it's a different thing. And so for McDonald, he, I mean, McDonald would look at Night of the Living Dead much the way I think he would look at the coronavirus and say, so what's changed? All the dead are walking around. Okay. Well, if the Lord wills that the dead should walk around, your responsibility hasn't changed. Your responsibility is to love your neighbor and, you know, be the presence of God in the world. Uh, whereas I think Edwards would look at that and go, yes, this is judgment. This is, you know, uh, these also Edwards probably look and go like, well, if God wants to throw bodies around in the earth, that's again, God's prerogative. Um, but I also think for McDonald, he would look at all that and interpret it as a new context for becoming gods, a new context for uh, enduring trials and becoming divine. Mm. Um, and inheriting the the love of God for ourselves. And when you say becoming and, gods, you mean apostrophe s, right? Um, becoming no, I don't. You mean I don't at all. Little g no, gods, I mean, little g, but also little g into big g. That the 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 um, the sharing of the divine nature into humanity as a supernatural uh, transformation of people into divine beings. Okay. This is this has been. This has been to some great degree the hope of the church since the beginning uh, that things like forensic justification have really obfuscated, like have really, really like the idea that we are to be partakers of the divine nature and not just in some sort of sense of being justified or quote unquote righteous, but actual what the Greek church is called theosis, mm. the idea that we are to be divinized and be and partake in divinity um, is is I mean, so the Catholic Church expresses this in terms of, um, to a great degree, the seeing of the divine nature directly in heaven. And in the Greek church, and the McDonald shares in this, then through McDonald, C.S. Lewis gets it, and Lewis also, of course, gets it from people like Athanasius and the Greek fathers. Um, this idea that, uh, yeah, no, we will be permeated with divine life, uh, such that if anyone were to look at us, they would see our master. Mm. Um, and so that, and again, this is that sort of pseudo Dionysian idea that the good spends itself out into the world and gathers the world up into itself. So the idea that, um, uh, every rock, every tree, every person, potentially every animal will, God goes out into them and draws them up into God, uh, not in a pantheistic way but in a way that very specifically makes them truly themselves, mm. makes them truly the image of God. And this is something that McDonald expresses with the idea that um, each person, and he gets this from the book of Revelation, that each person will be given a stone with a secret name on it, known only to the Father. Mm. Uh, and this is the secret relationship between that creature of God and God, such that when McDonald pictures heaven, we are all prophets to each other. We all delve into the mystery of God and come back from that mystery and say, Look what I found. Go deeper into the mystery yourselves. Mm. Um, and then you go into the mystery, finding the thing with armed with the thing that I know. And you come back and go like, look what I found. And I go, oh, that's amazing. And then we go in together. And, you know, it's this great dance that goes on forever and ever and ever where we participate more and more into God. Mm. And so I think for McDonald, Night of the Living Dead is, is just one more chance mm. to go deeper into the mystery of God to see even in these things that maybe you have to destroy that God has made them and that they are gods. Uh, no. So, and in that sense, God apostrophe S. Mm -hmm. okay. um, right. And so for you to become divine, you have to 
accept the will of God, but also know that the will of God is always for your good. Mm. Even if at the moment it looks bad. Um, and there's a really great line from a novel of McDonald's. There's an old man who's dying and he's with his daughter. And, you know, she says something along the lines of you should pray and you should, you should invite God in and, and God should come close. And, uh, the old man says something like, well, for someone like me, for someone as bad as me, the closer he is, the worse it is for me. And she says, no, for the worst person who ever lived, the closer he is, the better it is for them. Um, and that's really the distinction there between, I'd say, Edwards and McDonald and their view of apocalyptic is that if the apocalypse is coming, if, if the end is coming, if anything is coming, any kind of tragedy, any kind of thing. Now is the moment when you could come to God uh, and not like just like a come to Jesus, believe in Jesus moment, but to genuinely encounter the divine life uh, in a way that brought, draws you deeper into the mystery of God. Whereas Edwards would say, eh, yeah, probably that old man's right. He's probably right that like if God comes close to that guy, he's screwed. That's yeah. bad. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think in all this stuff, if McDonald were to look at somebody in Mad Max or were to look at somebody in... Uh, fallout or somebody in uh, a zombie apocalypse, he would say, say essentially the same thing. He says, nothing's changed. Um, what does the Lord say? Love God and love your neighbor. If that means you die because you went out and helped somebody, then you die. The Lord will raise you up. Um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 because for McDonald, all wrath is um, remedial or, or healing yeah. uh, or at least potentially healing. Like yeah. you can resist it because your free will, it does play a part. Uh, then I think he would look at all of this and say, okay, well, how do we get to God through all of this? Yeah. It's pedagogical, right? In, in that right. Way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's much more origin. I would say is this sort of pedag pedagogical idea. Yeah. Whereas, uh, yeah, I mean, McDonald wouldn't reject that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and I guess that's one thing, uh, the, when you think about Mad Max and did you ever see the the uh, I forget what year it was the the more recent um, Judge Dredd movie uh, with Carl Urban? Um, I saw like the first fifteen minutes of it. I yeah. didn't see the whole thing. It, it's a fantastic um, underappreciated comic book film, um, and uh, it's just called Dread. And right, uh, and right. but what you get in those kinds of and I I'm not from I have not read the comic that it's based mm -hmm. on but um I did see the Sylvester Stallone movie when it came out and <laughs> I, I just remember having seen it I don't know if it's good uh -huh, or bad uh -huh. it's probably one of those things that's so bad it's good um but I don't know yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> but uh but the um uh, when you see that what what strikes me about Dread the the recent film is and and it's like Mad Max it's after an apocalyptic event what mm -hmm. comes of that is society basically just restructures itself as it was, but just worse, right? It's just oh, kind of, sure, right? it's like, I mean, dread is just like a hyper version of all the injustices of society, of the society before mm. the war kind of, you know what I mean? Right. And so like, um, yeah, people are just dehumanized to an uh, even more exponential degree um, by the systems of this world, right? Um, and then justice has been reduced to a single figure, like who's both judge and executioner, or judge, right, jury right. and executioner, right? And um, and so um, I think that that's one thing uh, that about these some of these apocalyptic narratives that they don't 
learn and they don't improve based on the right. apocalypse, right? And so that, that's right. one thing that kind of stands. I guess that's what makes them good movies, right? <laughs> they wouldn't be interesting movies if there were a utopia, uh-huh. right? Um, and so, uh, but I, I think that that's one way to use McDonald's theory to kind of crit- critique what went wrong in the Dread Society, in the Mega City World right. Society, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's also interesting if you think about it. I, I don't know, maybe there's somebody out there who's talked about this. The idea just sort of came to me while you were talking about that is this idea that that in some ways our post-apocalyptic narratives are this expression of our um, our sense of exceptionalism. That all societies before our society were crap because they led up to ours. Yeah. And whatever comes after has got to be worse because we're the best. <laughs> but we can't imagine <laughs> that the people who come after look at us and go like, oh, well, maybe they were actually – uh, fix some of our problems and they would have their own problems, of course, because it isn't a utopia. Um, but, but like, we can't just imagine that like the people might actually learn yeah. from and go like, Hey, well, well, you know, a lot of those were problems. So maybe we don't, uh, maybe we don't let, uh, companies run our lives. Like yeah. maybe, maybe we just stop doing that. Um, <laughs> and we do something else. And yeah, there will be problems there too. Cause we're, we're human and we're going to mess that up. But like, uh, yeah, it's, it is interesting. We don't learn. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I do wonder Well, and I think one of the most prophetic post-apocalyptic movies, and it's not technically post-apocalyptic, but it's certainly been one of the most prophetic movies that's come out in the last 20 years, uh, idiocracy. Oh yes. Um, you know, is, is one of these things that I think, uh, really emphasizes that sense that, um, the people who will survive are going to be the idiots. Yeah. Um, somehow the people who, who could actually take advantage of all of this, who could actually learn from it, they're just going to die off. Um, uh, or in something like fallout, uh, you have things like the Institute, which are all the smart people who went underground and got together and started building androids to go out into the world and really oppress everybody. Okay. Um, so if you're smart, you're evil. Uh, and if you're stupid, you'll survive, but you're not going to learn anything from it. Um, The thing I think a lot of these stories miss, uh, yes, is the idea that we might learn something, um, but also is just like most people are more complicated than that. Yeah. And that the people who exist and survive in a society are going to be different than just this group, that group or, or that group. The people with the guns, the people with the with the degrees, the people with, you know, like. There are a lot of just like normal people out there who uh, may might learn from all of this. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're right that, that that sort of pedagogical or the the moment. I mean, again, I would say I think for someone like uh, maybe even Karl Rahner, uh, the 20th century Catholic theologian, George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis, um, even some like J.R.R. Tolkien, because right. So Tolkien is is telling a story of a near post apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah, that's right? interesting. Yeah, um, he's telling a story of the the apocalypse that got uh, that got averted, um, and how does it get averted by common people doing heroic things? Mm-hmm. And so I think you know, and and Tolkien read MacDonald, uh, and I'm not going to by no means am I attributed everything of Tolkien to MacDonald, um, but the idea that the human being is always at the moment of crisis, we are always at the moment of moral crisis. Do I choose self or do I choose the other? Yeah. And um, and the hobbits choose the other 
the hobbits, you know, there's this really powerful line in that book where uh, uh, Sam says to Frodo, there's some good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Right. You know, that that's the common person who stands up at the moment of crisis. Um, and McDonald would just argue that's always now. Uh, it's always here. And so whether it's zombies or nuclear war or the coronavirus or whatever, we're always at the moment where God is saying, be like me. And we have the choice to say either yes or no. Yeah. Another movie that um, comes to mind that speaks to that, and I'm so glad you brought it up, um, is Children of Men. Um, mm, know, oh, yeah. Um, so this is a movie in which it's not like a, a traumatic event. Humanity just winding down. There's infertility, right? right? And there's people a world. stop having babies. Yeah, yeah. and and no one knows why. Um, in the movie, yep. I don't know if I have the book. I haven't read it yet. Um, but I, I don't know if that's explained in the book. But yeah, for whatever reason, they know society is winding to a stop, and right. society just breaks down into chaos because of that. Even though I, I, you know, all these people who think that if there weren't people on the world, the world would be perfect. Um, when we right, do, yeah. redu- when we do reduce the population and there are ostensibly plenty of resources for everyone, things get right. worse. Right. Um, right. And so, uh, and, and which is a, a really powerful moment, but that movie is such a powerful redemption story. Um, mm. because you have a, a child miraculously being born into this and then all these people like sacrificing themselves to get this child out of that war right. zone. Right. Um, right. And they don't know that any good is going to come from their death, right? right. Um, they just kind of um, willingly sacrifice themselves on the hope uh, of, of of a better tomorrow for others. Right. Yes, absolutely. Right. And that's always the – that's the way the world goes on, right, yeah. is that, yeah. that people say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to put my chips on hope. Um, and if that cost me my life, it cost me my life. Um, which is one of the really discouraging things I've run into during this coronavirus thing is, you know, I talk to former students of mine, I talk to some other people and I hear this idea that, so at, at this point, uh, at least in Philadelphia, we're on like day three or four of the official stay at home order. Um, and like two days in people are telling me, yeah, I'm already sick of this. Mm. And I'm, I'm like, bro, that's, you know, like this is a marathon. Like we are, we are, you know, we have to be, uh, sort of considering ourselves stationed at home instead of stuck at home. Right. Like that, that sort of mindset shift of this is my role. This is my responsibility. I, I I was telling Matt break the other day that, um, I really wish we would put out posters. We put on walls in places that are like world war two era style posters that say, you know, like uh, your like the, the enemy is out there. Your job is to stay at home and and fight the fight by, you know, um, socially distancing and, yeah. and just like some big mustachioed guy with a, <laughs> with a you know, a, a doughboy helmet on telling you to like, you know, cook your barbecue chicken in your backyard instead of going out to eat, you know, like yeah. um, that sort of social responsibility uh, thing. But it is it's it's society rests on the shoulders of the common person and the common person's willingness to say, I don't know what's going to happen, but there is some good in the world and it's worth fighting for. And that um, and for McDonald, that is all of history because all human beings are the moment, the place of ethical choice of love or hatred. Um, And, you know, you can sort of put that in a more secular way. You can put it in a more theological way. 
But here we are again at that moment, as we are every day, which it's just not always evident to us, is that idea of like, yeah, we are always in the children of men situation. Society always rests. This is why, and I know people, he's a very divisive figure. Um, but I think Jordan Peterson has been very good about this and in sort of in a sort of philosophical uh, or psychological way talking about this, that you are the place where heaven or hell happens. Like you are the thing that's holding hell from society back uh, or you're the place that lets it in. Mm. Um, and that that idea, I think, is relentlessly said throughout Christian history is that um, it rests on you, the common person. It's the thing that um, uh, Dostoevsky has the sort of inquisitor say to Jesus, right, that, that the thing that Jesus asked was too hard that everything should rest on our shoulders. Um, that, and so we had to build a different thing than what Jesus actually asked us to do. Um, and so that, that idea that, uh, you know, in Children of Men, in The Lord of the Rings, in Dracula, in all the, just common people mm -hmm. uh, who have to stand up and say, well, I'm very small, uh, and, uh, but, but apparently I'm being asked to stand in this line and hold the darkness back. Yeah. And, uh, and for, for ultimately, I think for someone like McDonald, uh, the thing to always be aware of is that that gate of darkness is, is it may be out there, but it's always also in you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's honestly, I mean, you cited Jordan Peterson, um, who's, you know, considered the right wing sort of person, but, um, that's also a sentiment that I think the left can get around to. I mean, they call it solidarity. Right. And, and, right. Um, and, but yeah, but it well, is funny is Peterson doesn't consider himself right wing at all. He well, considers himself liberal. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, but for whatever reason, his audience, um, skews, right. right, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but, um, but no, you're, but you're right. What you've pointed out is exactly right. This is something, um, I think common to a lot of, um, even divergent philosophical systems. Right. And, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. moments like this help us see that kind of. Right. And so I guess right. this is what you're talking about with McDonald. Like it, it makes apparent. That's what apocalypse means. The revealing, right. The revealing. Um, right. And so, yeah. And it makes apparent these things that we need to do. Well, Josh, this was just an amazing conversation for me. Do you have anything else? I don't want to cut you off. If there's anything else you want to talk about, um, I'm happy to give you the floor more. No, I, I guess the only thing I would say is, and this is the thing that I think has been, since we've been talking video games wise on our podcast for a long time about apocalyptic narratives and post-apocalypses and stuff, the thing I think for us to always remember uh, is that um, in the West, we play with post-apocalyptic narratives a lot. And um, we what we don't often think about is that at any time there are people in the world living in post-apocalyptic societies like that is always true mm -hmm. uh that there are always people living in places that if we saw them we would go oh what zombie movie is this or yeah. what post-nuclear world is this and the people are genuinely faced with those realities all the time and here we are just like in a yeah and it's true people are getting sick people are dying that is absolutely a serious thing but the vast majority of people are being asked to do some very simple things. And we are referenced. Uh, and to some degree, I think it's a disservice to us. We've done the wrong thing maybe with our pop culture around post-apocalyptic post narratives. 
where we've become sort of cynical and jaded about it. And people make zombie apocalypse jokes about the coronavirus. And that's all fine. Like, I'm all, I'm all for joking about almost anything. Yeah. But um, if that then also makes you cynical about your personal responsibility in the situation, it's done us a disservice. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, like, we don't have to live in a real post pie. I went to the supermarket yesterday. They were out of eggs and some paper products. Well, that's if that's the cross I have to bear in this, like it's that's a small cross. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, being like if this helps us to be aware more one of the solidarity that we should have with each other and hopefully also across political lines, yeah. uh, especially we're citizens together. We're part of a society. We should take care of each other. Um, we have responsibilities to each other. Uh, but also if it like puts in context other people's real tragedy, then then maybe it will help us to do the thing that George McDonald would want, which is to everywhere and at all times find the opportunity to delve deeper into God. Um, but I'm a little bit pessimistic too. I just think we're just going to go back to our own selfish like well, things. The fact that, I mean, people are complaining. I mean... During normal times, all anybody wants to do is sit around and play Netflix all day, right? And, right. And now that's all we're asking you to do. And, and now right, all of a yes. sudden it's an affront to your morals, right? And, right. And, and I yeah. just, yeah, that that is depressing. Um, and the, you see the images of the spring breakers and yes. and that sort yeah. of thing, right? And and again, sort of a Jonathan Edwards person would think, well, if you get corona, we're all going to sort of like sc- like mock you and laugh at right. your pain, right? right. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, that that is a very depressing um, concept. Yeah, and if I could society. blame one sidal thing on it, it's that we've stopped teaching um, social studies and uh, you know just basic like civics. Yeah, the very basic idea that you have a responsibility to other people as a as a citizen of your country. And honestly, you would think the church would be the most attuned to that responsibility. Right. And, you would think that <laughs> and, and it's, it doesn't turn out to be true. And, and it's, no. it's, um, it, it's very sad. I've actually been thinking a lot lately. I had a, I recorded a show that will probably come out the week before this show, um, about with, uh, C. Derek Varn. And at the end of that, um, he brought up the idea of, um, and, and I've been thinking about it, the old sort of mutual aid organizations um, from, mm. from the old mm. days, right? Like, what is not, a, is this not the best time in his, in our lifetimes mm. to band together with people, um, share resources, do, right. um, you know, co-op daycare for people who have to go to work and can't find yep. it because their schools are closed, um, you know, find food, pull together rent money for people um, because okay. they, they're not being able to, like, what better time in history to do, like, that basic level of, uh, of self-sacrifice for the good of others, right? And so, yeah. yeah. And for churches to donate some of their lawns to, so our church has donated some of its lawn to just growing fresh produce and giving it out to the people in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, we got a lot more lawn. We could do, we could do more of that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, like just taking that and saying like, yeah, what, you know, why not? This is let's help each other in a very practical way. Yeah. Um, 
in a nonpartisan way. This is not a political right. statement, right? Yes. This is just, right. I mean, I guess any collective action is politics, right? But um, in, in one sense, yes. <laughs> and in, in another sense in which we use it all the time, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's the opposite of that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I kind of wish, I mean, I, that's my hope is that there's some form of like um, community mindedness that, that comes out of this. Uh, on I hope level, so too. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, uh, on that note, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Um, Josh Wise, check him out. All ports open. Um, if you sort of Google that, you'll find the, the podcast network. Um, and the the serial drama is awesome. And, and <laughs> I, thank you. I, I should have you on just to talk about that specifically at some point. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and we'll make that happen down the road here. But yeah, cool. Josh Wise, thanks. Are you going to be at Theocon in the Pittsburgh? Are you? We won't. Pittsburgh is such a weird distance for us. It's it's sort of too short to fly and too expensive <laughs> and too long to drive when one of our people is a priest on a weekend. Um, Understood. Yeah. That, that... So, yeah. If you guys can figure out, um, I was talking to Matt about this. If you could figure out a way to do like virtual presentations, we would love to do yeah. like a teleconference panel or something like that uh, to come in. Jesus, you think at the very least um, someone could like I'll probably Facebook Live mine or something, right? You know right, what I mean. Right. If, at the very least, do something like that. Um, I'll clear it with them, of course. I don't know if that's even legal, but um, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So um, anyway, well, if I don't see you, then um, I'll see you at some other point down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I we're, I'm gonna really want you to come on for our our sort of pop culture discussion okay. show. We'll find a we'll find a topic where we can talk for an hour about about some nonsense. We just did. We just recorded. Uh, we're doing episodes for this thing called rewrites and prewrites. Okay. So we just recorded an episode where we rewrote Batman v Superman, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and one where we prewrote The Matrix Four. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> knowing nothing, really, not much about what the actual thing's going to be about. So how would we write it? So I would love to have you on one of those where we could rewrite a piece of cinema tragedy uh or pre-write something that's going to come out i would be all down for that thanks so much okay um, cool, yeah, that would cool. be great josh wise um thank you for joining us and thanks for listening to the sectarian review podcast